Hi guys, welcome back. This is Miss Bell from the River Ridge Learning Commons and we're going to read chapters 7 and 8 of Nim's Island by Wendy Orr. From the top of Fire Mountain you could feel like a frigate bird floating strong on the winds and seeing everywhere you wanted to see. You could see the island's shores and beaches and the grasslands and cliffs and the rocks of the forest. You could see far, far over the sea every way that it rolled to the ends of the earth. Early next morning, Nim whistled for Fred and hugged Selkie goodbye. I'll be careful, she promised, and then she checked that her spyglass was around her neck to look for Jack, dropped a notebook and pencil in her pocket to write things down for Alex, and packed two bananas, a piece of coconut, a pancake bread, and her bamboo cup into her backpack for a picnic along the way, and she set off to climb Fire Mountain. She stopped at the pool to fill her cup and she shoved its bamboo lid back on tight, then climbed on up. Past the top of the waterfall, flowing the creek through tangled vines and fly-munching flowers. The air steamed and sweat dribbled. Get down and walk, Fred, said Nim. But Fred liked being carried and he sprayed a cool saltwater sneeze across her neck. Okay, she said, but we'll stop for a rest. The creek was shallow and warm, but they flopped in and it trickled over their hot bodies. Nim lay on her back and peeled a banana and Fred stared at the coconut. Later, said Nim. Fred tried to sulk, but it was too hot to bother. They climbed higher and the ground was gravelly and black. The plants were gray spikes and the creek disappeared. Then there were no plants at all, just bubbling steam and, hot, and the rotten egg smell of hissing stones but a hundred times stronger. P.U., Nim coughed, and Fred sneezed a pathetic spray. Long, long ago, the top of Fire Mountain had been a round green peak. Then one rumbling, earth-shaking day, it had poured out its heart of boiling, rolling, melting lava, and the round green peak had been blown away. Now the top of the mountain was a sharp gray point with a great smoky crater yawning below. Nim wanted to look down into the crater, but the cloud of steam was too thick to see through and, to, and too choking to breathe. And the longer she stood on the rocks, the hotter they got. So she had to hop on one foot and then on the other, and then she had to run out of the smoke and away from the heat to the very top of the mountain. She sat down and Fred climbed off her shoulders and they both took a deep breath. Picnic? asked Nim. And they shared the coconut and water. Then Nim ate her bread and her other banana and looked all around. No matter which way or how far her spyglass stared, the ocean was empty. There was no white sail or anything else that could be Jack's boat. Nothing but a frigate bird winging steadily out to the western sea. Maybe he'll bring me another message through Nim, or thought Nim. But first, she was going to be Alex's island eyes. Far below her was the top of Frigate Bird Cliffs, then Turtle Beach's pale golden sand, the grasslands of Shell Beach, and the hut, on to Sea Lion Point and Keyhole Cove, and finally, the grim black lava rock that stretched all the way back to the far edge of Frigate Bird's Cliff. The island was built in layers, Nim thought, beach and rock, grassland and rainforest, and last of all, the rocky fire mountain cone. 
She picked up her notebook and pencil, but before she could start to write, the ground began to tremble. Then the earth roared and the mountain bellowed and an explosion of red covered the sky. A fountain of lava, red and bubbling, shot up from the middle of the crater. Red and gold stars, hot and boiling, sprayed all over the mountaintop. It was like the wildest storm when wind and rain crash and great surf waves thunder, except that the wind and the rain and the waves were all made of fire. Fred was a streak of gray flying over gray rocks, and Nim's legs followed him as she ran for her life down the side of the hot gravel cone. But the gravel was deep and crumbly, and Nim's foot twisted and she rolled and skidded and tumbled down the mountain. She picked herself up and went on running, met Fred by the creek where they had had their first rest, and they splashed on through and ran some more. Nim's breath came in jagged chunks. She was so hot, she thought flames might spurt out of her head like her own miniature volcano. And just when they couldn't run any farther, they splashed into the waterfall's cold water and whooshed gently down to the pool. They sat in it for one refreshing moment and then they ran the rest of the way back to the hut. Selkie was waiting anxiously on her rock. She barked when she saw them, sniffed Nim all over and woofed sadly when she found the cut on her knee. It was a big messy cut with torn skin, deep gravel grooves and lots of blood. Nim must have done it when she had tumbled down the mountain, but had not, but had been too scared to feel it. It hurt now that she wasn't so scared. Nim stretched out on the rock and let Selkie fuss. She stared up and Fire Mountain was still shooting scarlet stars, a glow of red on the gray cone, but the lava hadn't followed them and they were safe at home. But she hadn't seen Jack's sails, so he wouldn't be home tonight, which meant there was one more thing she had to do. She took her fishing rod back to the rocks and then she caught a fish. She dropped it in a bucket because sometimes Galileo came when he was called and sometimes he didn't. But he always came if he saw a fish. Dear Jack, today I climbed Fire Mountain to see if you were coming, but you weren't. I didn't do any science measurements or write anything down because the volcano erupted when we were at the top. If you think Fred can move fast for coconut, you should see how fast he can run away from an exploding volcano. I think I can see Galileo now, so I'll say goodbye. Love as much as Chica loves soccer, Nim. A frigate bird came closer, and it was Galileo, so Nim danced the fish in the air and called his name. Galileo swooped low and stayed long enough for her to pull out the letter that was tucked into his band and stick hers in instead. Thank you, Nim called as the big bird soared up to the nest on the cliffs, and she unrolled Jack's letter. Dear Nim, worked out best way of fixing the rudder is to drill a hole through the tip, not easy underwater. Pass a rope through the hole and steer with rope. I have drilled the hole, but had to jump out before I could get the rope through it. Sharks around here must have tasted the chunk I lost from my forehead in the storm and thought it was jaw-snapping yum and wanted to chomp the rest. As soon as they forget about me, I'll get that rope through and I'll be on my way home. 
but the storm blew me a long way, so it'll take a couple of days. Love as much as sails love the wind, Jack. Nim read the letter, and then she read it again. And even though Jack had tried to make it funny, she felt more lonely and miserable than she ever had before. Even writing a long, long email to tell Jack Rover all about Fire Mountain didn't make her feel better. Chapter 8 While Jack was waiting for the sharks to disappear and hoping that he could fix his rudder and worrying about Nim, he saw a ship. Jack danced a jig, sang a song because he wanted to get home even more than he didn't want to be rescued. His song didn't rhyme and it didn't have a tune, but it went, I'll be home soon, I'll see Nim tomorrow. The plankton can wait and everything will be all right. The ship came closer. It was a cruise ship, a pink and purple cruise ship. It was the Tropo Tourists. Jack stopped dancing and he stopped singing and his face was pale and his stomach was sick. But Nim had been alone too long and he knew what he had to do. In the cabin, he found the flags he had never used, one with blue and white checks and the other one striped. When you put them together, they said, SOS, come and rescue me, to any sailor who saw them. Then he waited. The longer he waited, the more he didn't want the Tropo tourists to see the island. He didn't want to talk to them, and he didn't want them ooing and aahing and taking pictures of his home. But the longer he waited, the more he didn't want Nim to be alone. The sad flags fluttered from the mast, and he went on waiting. But the Tropo tourists sailed out of sight. Early next afternoon, when Nim was sitting in a palm tree to watch for Jack, the ship came to the island. Just a speck on the distance, so Nim cheered and thought how she would run to the farthest point of Keyhole Cove and blow her shell whistle and shout, Jack needs help. Look for a boat with a broken rudder. Then she saw the colors through the spyglass, and she knew that she could never, ever call out to this ship, because no matter how much she wanted Jack to be home now, what she wanted even more was for him to be happy, and he'd never be happy if the trip of tourists came to the island. And even though they didn't know it was Jack's island, if they passed the blue waters of Keyhole Cove, or the peaceful sands of Turtle Beach, they would know that it is the most beautiful island in the world. And they would come back with curious tourists and fill the island with holidays and noise. Oh no, they won't, said Nim. She raced to the hut and turned on the laptop. To aka at incognito.net from jack.rousseau at explore.net. Date, Tuesday the 6th of April, time 1414. Dear Alex Rover, I hope it's okay to write so early, but could you please tell me right away what your hero would do if the bad guys were coming to his island and he wanted them to go away and not notice it? From Nim. To Jack.Russo at explore.net from aka at incognito.net. Date, Tuesday, 6th of April, 9-17. Dear Nim, it's okay to write any time, and it doesn't even have to be about coconuts, unless your parents have another rule. When my beautiful lady hero was escaping from bad guys in sands at sunset, she disguised herself in old clothes and grease till she looked so ugly they didn't notice her. 
but a whole island is trickier. Somehow the hero would have to make the rocks seem more dangerous, the reef more terrifying, the pale sands bleak and lonely, make the whole island seem like a creepy, scary place. This sounds like an exciting game. Your friend, Alex. The ship was coming closer. Nim would have to work fast to disguise the island. The sea lions were on the rocks, coughing, barking, honking, all the usual sea lion conversation, but Nim interrupted, shouting and waving her arms. Selkie swam after her, barking reproachfully. The ship came closer still. It was slowing down. It had seen the island. Bad boat, Nim screamed. Selkie looked confused. The other sea lions stared. Shoo, Nim shouted, get off the rocks. Grumbling and grunting, they slid into the water. Nim dived in after them, but Selkie blocked her before she had gone three strokes. I'll go back, Nim pleaded, if you stop the boat. So when Nim was safely on shore, Selkie held, he headed the other sea lions out to the reef. The ship stopped and lowered a small boat down to the water. Creeping low out of sight of snooping binoculars, Nim jumped into the tidal pools and snatched up armfuls of the iguana's favorite seaweed. The small boat cast off with a snarl of its motor and the king of the sea lions bellowed back. If the boat found its way in through the maze of the reef, Shell Beach would be the first thing it would see. Crawling across the pebbly rocks and sharp white shells, the blood flowing red from her cut on her knee, Nim threw handfuls of seaweed from one end of the beach to the other. Fred bellowed, nibbling as fast as she could put it down. You can have coconut, she promised him, if you'll bring all your friends to the beach. Fred looked at her. As much coconut as you can eat, Nim said. With a sneeze of surprise, Fred scuttled away. From rock to rock, tidal pool to sea, until the beach was covered with spiny iguanas munching free seaweed. From the reef, it would look like a beach of bumpy gray rocks, and maybe they would turn around before they saw Turtle Beach. Nim sneaked back to her lookout palm, shinnied up to the top and clung high and still. The boat had nearly reached the first gap in the reef. It was close enough for Nim to see the people inside wearing pink t-shirts and purple caps with stuffed fish on top. Suddenly, the gap disappeared in a swirling, thrashing sea lion storm. The boat idled on past, looking for another place to get through. But the sea lions followed. The king roared his roar and the others bellowed. The splashing sprayed higher and the boat rocked wildly and was slowly, ferociously pushed out to sea. From her tree, Nim could see something else. Galileo was circling the boat. Galileo had never seen pretend fish before. Galileo's rule was that if it looked like fish, it was a fish. And if someone else had that fish, Galileo would steal it. He called to his mate and they dived together and snatched two fish caps from the heads of the boat. The people screamed and swore and threw their arms over their faces, but the giant birds only cared about the caps. They spat the first ones out into the sea and snatched two more to see if they tasted any better. Now the boat jolted, tipping hard as if it had been hit, as if it had hit a rock. Please don't get hurt, Nim begged the sea lions. The boat steadied. 
Its engine roared and shot back across the water. The tide was going out, and by that time, the little boat had been lifted onto the ship. The reef was jagged above the water, so the Tropo tourists cruised on past, but they didn't go away. They went as slow, as slow, and as close as they dared, past Turtle Beach and around the point of Frigate Bird Cliffs. Nim crept down to the beach and tried not to cry. Chica lumbered up from the water, a smug look on her face and purple paint across her shell. Nim remembered the jolt. Did you hit them, she asked, scratching under the turtle's chin. Chica looked smugger. Everyone tried but me, thought Nim. It stinks. Turtle Beach stank, too. Stank worse than a bad day at the hissing stones. Yuck, said Nim. Half a dead shark had washed up in the tide. No one would ever, no one would land if they could smell that, she said, and wondered if Alex Rover's hero could use a rotten shark to fight for his island. She sprinted to the hut and grabbed her wagon, dumped in the shark slimy and rotten. It was a long, puffing haul to the hissing stones, but Nim would have pulled it to the top of Fire Mountain if she had to. The steam was drifting out to sea. It wasn't an extra stinky day, but I'll fix that, said Nim. She dragged the shark out of the wagon and across the biggest vent where the steam hissed out between the stones. The steam stopped coming out, and the shark didn't smell any worse than it did before. What else stinks, Nim wondered. Sometimes seaweed washed up on the black rocks, and if it didn't dry out and it didn't wash away, after a while it began to rot. Nim scrambled up and collected shirtfuls of the putrid sea muck. She poked her head around the point, the ship cruising past the breakers where the black rocks met the reef. Nim clutched her seaweed and tumbled down boulders to the hissing stones. The shark smelled so bad now, she wanted to vomit. But she dumped the seaweed onto the steaming vents and she ran back to hide, out of the stench and out of sight. The ship rounded the point. For a long, long moment, nothing happened. Nim had dumped so much muck that the steaming stink could, that no steaming stink could escape. It was too late to do anything else. The ship was across from Sea Lion Point right in the line with the hissing stones. The shark exploded. The rotting seaweed fountained. The built up steam sprayed bits of rotten shark, seaweed, and Nim didn't know what all in a rushing geyser far into the air. The gentle breeze wafting out to sea turned into a gray, choking, sick-making fog. The ship turned and steamed out of sight. That evening, Nim was so tired she couldn't eat, and she felt so cold. The empty inside and empty inside and so hot and itchy outside that she took her flashlight and towel and went up to the pool. Nim loved the ocean. It was always there whenever she looked and as far as she could see, but it was too huge and powerful to understand and too dangerous to trust. The pool was easy to love because it was so small that she knew every rock in it and so peaceful that she could float peacefully as the sky got darker and the moon and stars came out while the muck and the muddling washed away. And that is the end of a very exciting chapter in Nim's Island. 
I'll talk to you guys next time when we read chapters 9 and 10. Have a great day.